0: Welcome to episode eight of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever, Amen. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. If you're listening to the audio-only version of the show, I want to remind you that the episode is also available as a video, which is really the best way to be a part of the conversation. You can find the video at www.buymeacoffee.com slash Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash choir. And if you are enjoying the show, that site is also the spot where you can show your support by buying us a beer. Your beer money contributions help to support future episodes of the podcast. Speaking of support, we have an incredible sponsor for today's episode Four Fires Meadery. They are an absolutely amazing meadery located here in Toledo, but their meads are also available for shipping nationwide. I will be drinking some of their stuff during the episode today. And if you want your own bottle, and trust me, you do, you can visit them at www.4fmeadery.com. That's the number 4fmeadery.com. More about them later in the show. My guest for today is David Montoya. David is a composer based in Southern California, where he also teaches high school choir and leads a ukulele ensemble. I'm super excited to invite you to this conversation with David. As you'll hear, he has a strong connection to Whatever and every Amen, and he and I also share a bit of common musical lineage, if you will. He's a guy that I greatly admire and has written some really wonderful stuff for choir. Today we discuss musical mentors, books, and the catalog of Steely Dan. If you haven't already, pour yourself a drink. My name is Brad Pearson. My guest today is David Montoya, and this is the Composer Happy Hour. David Montoya, welcome to the Composer Happy Hour. So happy to have you here. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you tonight?
1: Doing really good. Yeah, it's not, good. Uh, quite night over here on the West Coast, but... Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Well, late afternoon.
0: Good. You're actually at happy hour time.
1: Uh, yeah, 4.30-ish. Yeah,
0: whereas I'm, I'm not so much. We've, we've already had dinner and putting the baby to bed and all of that. Uh, well, uh, why don't you tell everybody what you're drinking today?
1: Oh, let's see. Okay, well, I, I mentioned to you I'm a uh, non-alcoholic guy, yeah. so I just never got into it. So I've got a mixture of Shasta Tiki Punch, a little bit of ice cream, and some pineapple juice mixed in. Nice. Yeah, see that's fancier than uh what a lot of us
0: drink uh even though we're you know there's booze in it but uh yeah it looks good it's, it's a sugar shock. Sure. Well, I tell you, uh, my drink tonight, uh, actually has a fair amount of sugar in it as well. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, I mentioned to you that I, we have a sponsor for the episode who were kind enough to, to give me this beverage. So our sponsor is four fires meadery. And I'm going to get that right in on the camera Four fires meadery, which is a meadery here, uh, in Toledo, Ohio. And, uh, they're kind of incredible. They make, uh, just absolutely delicious stuff. And what I'm drinking tonight is a cranbanero. And I'm going to read this because I want to make sure I get it right. It is a honey cranberry cherry wine uh, with um, habanero peppers added. So uh, it's a little bit spicy, very sweet. um, And it's 11% alcohol. So it's a little bit boozy. And uh, quite delicious. In fact, I was just over at their metery uh, on uh, f- this past Friday and uh, had some uh, flight on their patio. It's incredible. Uh, and I will mention later in the episode we'll we'll do a, a, a kind of a promo for these guys, but they're shipping now uh, all across the nation. So they're a local place, um, but anybody who happens to be listening, no matter where you are in the continental United States can order some, Four Fires Mead, and it's uh, it's quite delicious. I'm now, see, myself. I would
1: try something like that. That sounds that sounds exciting. It's not that I'm against alcohol; I just never yeah. really got into drinking it. But yeah. sometimes these cool exotic flavors are something I like yeah, to try. For sure. Well, here you go. Cheers. Cheers to you. All right.
0: Yeah, mead is um, kind of become a bigger and bigger thing it's kind of taking over a segment in the uh alcoholic beverage industry and um in, it's very
1: I've never heard of mead or mead yeah.
0: I mean it's essentially uh distilled from honey right i mean honey is the sugar that creates the alcohol so meads tend to be very very sweet um they drink a little bit like wine uh in the the kind of amount of alcohol that they have uh, i said this one's 11% i have got a couple from them that are around 14% um, but they're, they're really sweet, so you usually are not going to drink huge quantities uh, mm-hmm. of mead at one time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's delicious, uh, delicious stuff. You know, it's funny that you said that you never really got into uh, alcohol because I'm a, a bit of a connoisseur of uh, spirits and beer and whatnot. But I did not start drinking until I was 21, mm. uh, which when I tell people that is Generally, a, sur- a surprise to them. Um, for the same, I, it just never interested me prior to that. Uh, and now it interests me a lot. So uh-huh. there's that. Uh-huh. Uh, Dave, you're out in California. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, are you, we were just talking to a guest for, who was originally from California on our last episode, Jennifer Jolly. Are you a sports fan?
1: Um, I like basketball. Uh, I don't have that much time to watch sports, so I, yeah. I don't often. But basketball, um, Lakers are my team. And so when it yeah. starts getting around that time, uh, I get very into it sometimes.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, Jen is a, a Dodgers fan, and we had some conversation about that because they they seem to be on the rise while my Cubs are uh, descending. And same with the Lakers right now. The Lakers are, uh, you know, uh, obviously not in the finals, but have played a, a pretty decent season. Whereas my Bulls are uh, not very good at the moment.
1: So uh, I'll say you know. I'll say that I found uh, Phil Jackson's mentorship for both teams. Uh, read all his books and got very yeah. into and inspired by what he had to offer to the team ethic, and I brought that I think to my classrooms. I always had that in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And he was amazing and more than the, the game itself, I found the leadership that he offered uh, to really uh, be something that interested me.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought up reading because you are, I know, an avid reader. I read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you read quite a bit. Uh, you post uh, about it uh, occasionally online and, and post what you, you've been reading. How, give, when, when you say you read a lot, can you give us an idea of what that means? How, how much do you read?
1: Well, considering all the other things that I have going on in my life, when I can find time to read, um, I, I consider it a, a little victory there for my own personal education and enjoyment. Um, but I, I've got a good friend, retired science teacher, recently retired from the school where I teach, uh, La Habra High School. And uh, Bruce would, you know, he has no children. He and his wife uh, live a life of books and, and and going to coffee shops and stuff like this. And um, yeah. And he had mentioned that he was going to try and read 50 books in one year. And so I said, that's a pretty neat goal, but that's way beyond what I have time for. Hmm. So I got inspired. And uh, about three and a half years ago, I made a New Year's resolution. I said, okay, I'm going to do three books a month. They can be small books. They can be big, heavy books. Um, I read the Bible cover to cover a few years ago, and that took three years to get through everything. Sure. And I wanted to read all of the world religion major books and see what they all had to say. Um, so I, I made that a goal. But then I set up, I set about uh, reading three books a month and I kept to it. And so I thought it'd be fun to kind of uh, you know a video, uh, not video, but uh, uh, Facebook post it, a little diary of all the things that I read. And so I did, I did three books a month uh, for the whole year. Next year came along and I said, I'm gonna up that to four books a month. And I did that. Um, and we're talking, it could be you know, a really thick three, 400 page book or, uh, or more, or it could be an, an Archie double digest, as long yeah. as I'm reading you know, three things that I feel like I've accomplished uh, something and got something out of it. So, um, so I've been on four books for the last two years. I'm keeping that steady right now to do four books uh, for, for, the, for the month. And I' nice. started a little small book club with some other guys that I know. Uh, most of them musicians. We started reading a Ted Joya book. If you don't know this book, um, Ted Joya, what is it called? It has to do. It's, it's like a music history book mm. from the very beginning of time to what the cavemen were probably doing mm. uh, musically. Uh, fascinating stuff such as, you know, when they go into the caves and they find those cave paintings of animals and such, they also have noticed that those paintings are in the places of the cave that is the most acoustically resonant. Mm. So it leads them to think that maybe there were rituals going on in these parts of the caves before the hunt. Yeah, maybe there were vocal rituals that were getting really loud and getting everyone, you know, hyped up and ready to go out and do this communal uh, thing that was going to help the whole community. Stuff like that. So he takes you through a very, um, a very um, different view of music history, all the way up to modern times right now. With, um, as he mentions, devices and selling devices has become more important than the music that they're being used to. Sure. Uh, to listen to that music on, um, and they'll give away free music as long as you're buying our device. You know that type right. of thing. That kind of control over what the public in general gets to hear. It's a fascinating read. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it.
0: You know, it's funny uh, that you bring up early, early. You know, back in uh, caveman days, uh, my my master's thesis, which we're going to talk about. Uh, somehow we're going to get into this uh, similar conversation. I think several times uh, during our conversation today. But my master's thesis had to do with uh, just intonation and why it maybe is so efficient uh, for people to uh, sing and listen in uh, a more just intonation than equal temperament. And I wrote about human evolution a little bit in my uh, you know youthful pseudo-scientific way, the best that I could with the research that I had. But I was reading a lot about early, early uh, people and um, read a book by Stephen Miffin um, that was really, really good called The Singing Neanderthals um, mm. that talked a lot about the early days of people and how we developed language and um, how musical it, it must have been uh, as we, um, and that maybe um, even before any words that we had a kind of musical proto-language, right? That there was uh, mm. singing Uh, taking place before uh, language so it's interesting that you you brought that up i'm gonna have to get my hands on the book
1: well we've got uh, and i'll send you the title of that um i can get it for you it's on my shelf right there but i'm not remembering the title that was many books ago (laughs) yeah Um, so yeah to finish the last uh the last conversation I, i try and do about 40 books 50 books a year now and that's become regular for the last three or four years so yeah, I'm that's,
0: sure. that's great. Now, do you, do you track them on, do you use Goodreads to track them or something I else? To, I'm on there too. You know, I, I thought you were, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, you know, I got the, I, I'm on Goodreads and I hadn't used it uh, for a while and you get the emails at the beginning of the year, or maybe at the end of the previous year that are like track your reading, set your reading goal for 2021. And <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I set a, a goal that I knew that if I was only counting books that I was reading for myself that I could never achieve, and I set a goal uh, for 100 books, and that seems outrageous uh, it, until you realize that I am logging all the books that I read to my son, uh, so, some of which are, are 10 pages, one sentence per page, uh, but I, I wanted to track how many books I had, different books I had read to him over the course of the year, so. That counts. Yeah. I'm going to make my hundred book goal. Um, It's uh, I'm cheating a little bit, I think, but uh, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, You're uh, you like uh, uh, you seem to be more of an analog kind of guy than a digital guy in some ways. And I mean that as a compliment and just something I've observed, but I, I, again, I know you like to read. I, I would guess I could be wrong. But I would guess that you read physical copies of books almost exclusively as opposed to digital copies of books. Am I right about that?
1: Uh,
0: a few months
1: ago, I tried my first audiobook. I said, uh-huh. okay, I'm going to do this. You know, I take walks every day. I try and walk for 30 minutes a day, sometimes with my wife. Uh, sometimes I take the dog out. And sometimes it's uh, just me listening to stuff. So. I tried an audiobook. It took a while to get into the format. I like a physical copy of my hand. I like a yeah. highlighter. I like a pencil in the margins, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. So so yeah, I, I I'm more happy with the book in my hand. But it turned out to be okay. I mean, I listened to Frederick Douglass, and um by the time I was done with it, it was like uh, my bondage, my freedom. By the time I was done with it, I was just, you know, uh floored by what was in there and hearing Yeah some random man's voice reading it but it but it was great so i've listened to a couple of audiobooks but in general i've got stacks of books over here yeah well you know if you need something
0: to listen to on your walks i heard there's this really great podcast that somebody's put out with i heard about
1: that yeah (laughs) Uh uh
0: i actually i've been listening to podcasts on my walks um but i i brought up uh this uh idea of you being a little more analog because you also correct me if i'm wrong but you, you enjoy doing puzzles. <laughs> yeah,
1: Sorry, I like right? puzzles. Yeah, we haven't done any in a few months. Um, my middle son and I um, have this love for puzzles, and no one else in the house does. Um, but this goes back to when I was a kid. My sister and I used to love puzzles. So, jigsaw puzzles, it's got to be at least a thousand pieces, or else it's not worth it. So, yeah. we did about 20 during the pandemic. We were racing with some other friends on Facebook to see who could do more puzzles. And um, my son just has a knack for seeing shapes and fitting mm-hmm. things together and playing games, you know, which we love doing around here, too. So he's he's very good at um, seeing things that I don't see. So we sit down do puzzles together and uh, we've got a stack there waiting for us, but we haven't done one in a couple of months.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I was—I uh, mentioned I listen to podcasts when I, my son and I take our walks around the neighborhood, and I'm currently finally getting to finish um, a podcast called "The Bog House," that is uh, from actually the first guest on this show, uh, Melissa Dunphy, and it's fascinating. Actually, you'd really enjoy this podcast because it is um, uh, not music related, but it talks about. Um, sort of early American history, her and her husband, Matt, I'm gonna do this very succinctly. Her and her husband Matt basically bought a really old building that comes from uh, the very beginnings of our country and they found a bunch of artifacts in privies uh, when they were getting ready to remodel. And so this podcast is sort of all about this crazy uh, adventure that they go on. She just said on the episode I was listening to today that she loves doing puzzles but she's so happy that she has these artifacts that she's putting together because what she hates about doing puzzles is that at the end you are left with nothing because you just (laughs) break the puzzle and and put it back in the box. Uh And so she's loving putting together these old kind of ceramic pots and plates because you actually have something that you've created at the end. That's a, a tangible thing. It made me laugh because, uh, I sort of enjoy puzzles in that I, I like starting them and then I get about halfway done and then I never, I never <laughs> finish. I couldn't tell you the last
1: time I actually finished a
0: puzzle. But,
1: we, you know. we start to race at the end, you know, and start to hide the last piece from each other, or stuff like yeah, that. Sure. You know, who, yeah. gets to, who gets to finish the thing?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, David, I want to let's let's backtrack a little bit because I want people uh, who don't know you or anything else about you. uh, Let's uh, start at the very beginning. Can you tell us when and where you were born?
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I was born not far from where I now live uh, in West Covina, California, Southern California, um, at the Queen of the Valley Hospital in 1968. Excellent. Last day of 1968, which was a pretty turbulent time, I understand. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was, that was when I was born.
0: And uh, what are your parents'
1: names? Uh, David is my dad, and Barbara is my mother. And they were hey. also both born here in Southern California. Oh, nice. And what
0: did uh, David and Barbara do when you were growing up?
1: My mother worked in a doctor's office um, right out of high school, Um, it was it was an interesting time I just listened to like an hour-long conversation that my wife had had with my mom about her growing up and her you know experiences in Southern California Mm. as a woman of color etc and my wife was doing a paper on it so I was I went back and I listened to this recording. So just recently, uh, hearing her and all the things she had to say, telling about her upbringing, and she was determined to get married uh, with my father. She had met him during uh, high school. And my my grandmother said, well, you got to work for a year after high school, and you got to have your own car uh, if you're going to get married. My dad sure. went off to the service station in Germany. Um, he was three years older than her. So When he came back, she had a job working for this doctor and running the office, and uh, she had her own car. (laughs) So they got married as soon as he came back. So they got married very young. Um, Oh, let's see. Her experiences, it it was interesting. This is gonna get into a couple of, uh, maybe this takes it in a tangent a bit here, but you, you and I have two things at least in common, Brad. I think. And one of those things is that we are both language learners on Duolingo. Yeah. On app, right. Uh, spending a lot of time on there. You have spent a lot of time on Duolingo. I have. Yeah. And I'm like on an 82 day streak or something like that. There so, you go. Uh, I'm learning Spanish and I'm learning Latin. And I saw that you've done all the major European languages, I think. And uh... a,
0: a, a little bit. Mostly I've... French has been the one I've done the most of and, and quite a bit of German and some Italian, so yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. And the other thing that we have in common is that we both graduated from the same master's program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You and it was in uh, Southern California at Cal State Los Angeles yeah, where I did my undergrad. And then me when it was first established as a program at the University of Nevada, Reno. right. Yeah, so we were, I was in that first graduating class uh, many 20 some years ago. Uh, And so I know we've got those things in common. But the language thing takes me to um, the reason I'm learning Spanish right now is that I've tried to learn Spanish several times. And as, uh, as a Mexican American, I get asked a lot, you know, why don't you speak Spanish? Why don't you speak Spanish, you know? Um, third and fourth generation uh, Mexican- American is is what I am and this gets into the whole subject of my mother's upbringing where she talks about the uh, extreme prejudice that was going on uh, back in the in the 60s in Southern California against Hispanics. Mm-hmm. They were punished for speaking Spanish. Uh, she grew up not speaking Spanish in school and at home it was a lot less too, because although my grandparents spoke Spanish, they were also born here. (laughs) So being that far removed from living in a different country that speaks a different language, uh, it started to wind its way out of our normal usage. Yeah. Uh, And I wish I spoke Spanish and I've tried several times, but I've never needed to speak Spanish. Sure. So, um, So I've decided that it's important that I now learn to do it and this this app is not a commercial for the app but boy duolingo is really helping me to get comfortable uh using the spanish that i've gleaned over the years and um and i expect to be somehow fluent in a couple of years maybe yeah
0: yeah Yeah. uh and so uh dad was in the service mom was working at a doctor's office uh your your dad
1: what what did he do when he came back was he when he came back, he was a factory worker in the aerospace industry. So awesome. he was doing fasteners and things that would go out for airplanes and and those kinds of things. Yeah, hard work. It was it was hard, loud on the ears. You know, uh, sometimes backbreaking work, but he did it for so many years. I mean, he put my sister and I through college. You know, put us through a very comfortable mm-hmm. uh, a comfortable lifestyle. Um, he grew up poor himself, from a very large family, uh, where the father left, and they didn't have much. And so he was not gonna. He saw something different in my mom's family, which was a smaller Mexican family, about you know four siblings, and um, had enough to to be comfortable. And he, wanted, and he wanted that, and he wanted more, and he wanted education for his kids, and he worked hard, and he saved, and uh, I, I really, my hat's off to him for how much he did for me and my sister.
0: Yeah, were they, uh, I mean, they obviously weren't in musical careers, but were they musical? Did they play instruments or sing?
1: From what I understand, my father played the saxophone in the band, but uh, in high school, but he moved so much that it was hard to get established doing much of of, of extracurricular kind of lifestyle of a kid who's always there uh, at the same school. My mother sang in choir. Um, years later, she sang in my first choir that I started teaching at the church. So um, she she loves it. She's musical. She's um, not really gotten deep into it, but yeah, there, I don't know how I ended up so deep into the musical life um, because it certainly wasn't um, just just wasn't a a full part of my lifestyle uh, and my family life but my parents gave me ever every opportunity so I was nine years old when a traveling accordion salesman came to our house given our name was given to him by the kid down the street who was playing the accordion you know and they would pass off 10 names and and the guy would go around well that's how I got my start I loved it I was
0: very is that
1: real you got your start with a from a
0: traveling accordion salesman absolutely true I I mean that sounds like you're making it up I know you're not (laughs) but it sounds that
1: way I mean we played some recorder in school like everybody else you know and that kind of (laughs) thing but um but when this guy came around and he took out this little like one and a half octave accordion and showed me to play some things in my house, I was like, "Can I, Mom? Can I? I'd like to do the ten week trial, you know." And so and 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 the place was all the way out in Arcadia, so we had to, they drove me out there for lessons every week, wow. and I just loved it. After ten weeks, I knew I was going to stick with it for a while, so they bought me this thousand dollar accordion on payments you know and i was playing the two and a half octave big giant thing and it was it was foundational for my understanding of how to read music and my understanding of how of the keyboard in the right hand because the left hand was buttons and i played for about two years before i finally gave it up but um i think all those fundamentals were set
0: yeah now i know uh you two also have a fondness for um, a variety of instruments. Do you currently own an accordion?
1: I do. (laughs) You know, I hadn't played for years and my parents finally sold it at a yard sale and I wished I still had it. And then one came around in a thrift store and I picked it up and I said, I'm taking this home. And the amazing thing was I could still play it and I could still remember those tunes that I learned as a kid. That's awesome.
0: now uh i I, i'm gonna kind of veer off the path a little bit um can you tell us what how many what instruments do you own how many how many instruments how many can you rattle off what 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 do you have
1: if you want me to really count them i could say i've got you know this harmonica and that harmonica and, and get real detailed but uh i've got at last count, I actually made a list a few months ago. I said, you know what, how many do I have? Yeah. And so I started counting. Some of them are very playable, of course, and excellent fine instruments, and some of them are are kind of fun to hang on the wall, as you can see some around here. Yeah. But, um, I've, I've got about 55 instruments or so, I think. I recently yeah. gave them away. I've kind of come to the point in my career where I think, let's see, in nine years, I can retire from public mm-hmm. institution teaching and start teaching out of my house, you know, mentoring out of my house and composing all the time. Yeah. This is, I'm looking forward to this time when I have um, more time to focus on those kinds of things. And I almost feel like, gee, maybe I should start giving away some of the stuff I've collected. <laughs> so as yeah, my yeah. students are coming up and becoming teachers themselves, you know, I'll say, do you want these? Why don't you take them? You can use them or take this stack of books because they'll, they'll mean something to you on your shelf. Or, um, you know, take this instrument, etc."
0: Yeah. Guitar. Uh, can you uh, tell us what are some of the more unique things that you've got?
1: uh well let's see if you can see right back there those two ukuleles that is a a baritone ukulele the the yellow one uh, that belonged to my ukulele teacher bill Tapia. bill was this amazing um amazing legend ukulele and guitar player who actually entertained the troops in world war one the uso and i met him by I bought my first Hawaii, uh, my first ukulele when my wife and I went to Hawaii for our, for our honeymoon. And I saw him at a concert in Claremont and I went up to him. She goes, why don't you go ask him if he gives lessons? And I said, okay. And so I went and, uh, and I ended up um, starting up a relationship with him. He lived out in Westminster. He passed away at the age of 103. Wow. About, gee, it's maybe been almost 10 years now. And so I would go to him and I'd take a, you know, quick half hour hour lesson with him. He played with all the jazz greats. He played with, you know, uh, Charlie Parker and Billie Holiday and uh, these folks, Hoagie Hoagie Carmichael. And so he would sit there and write out a chart for me. And then we would sit there and we'd play and I'd strum the chords and he would improvise. And then he'd say, all right, improvise and I'll play the chords, you know, and it was that kind of thing. It was fantastic. That was his baritone ukulele that he didn't really play that much, Uh, but it's got his name on it. And so I bought it from him uh, years ago. Uh, So that one's uh, kind of special to me. Yeah. This one over here on the right is an Egyptian oud, which is probably way out of tune. And I've played on it a little bit. It's a fretless 10 string instrument that a former student brought back for me from Egypt. I told her, if you see any ouds out there, I'm interested in buying one. If you find a dealer's name for me, send me pictures, and then I'll buy it. Well, she shows up in my classroom one day with this oud, and she says, here, this is for all you've done for me. And I got wow. my cur- So I was very thrilled at that. Yeah. Yeah. Several guitars, you know, lots of ukuleles, lots of harmonicas, Yeah, do? You can see my didgeridoo up there, uh, <laughs> uh, stuff like that.
0: And so how do you get from uh, uh, an accordion from a traveling salesman to becoming, uh, you know, going into music education? I mean, where does,
1: what happens that that that's the trajectory? That's a very good question, because (laughs) I did not take up music again until I was in late high school. Yeah. So, you know, my main job right now is I'm I'm a choral director. I'm a choral guy. So I I teach high school choirs, Um, but I was never in high school choir. I was in the band uh, playing in the jazz band where I started to take piano lessons and I started to learn how to play chords and off of chord charts. So about that time, I'd say junior year, senior year of high school, I started playing guitar with my uncle and then I started playing, taking piano lessons again and uh, or for the first time and really loving it. And so all that knowledge that I had built into me from early on on the accordion was started coming through. I get to uh, graduate. And actually my, my path was, I was really thinking I was going to be joining the Catholic priesthood. Huh. This is where I was going. And so I went, I took a retreat. I went and I talked to the, to the priests in the diocese. and. Um, they were ready to sign me up, and I was ready to sign up. Uh, I went up to St. John's Seminary in Camarillo for a for a meet-and-greet uh, weekend, and I thought I was ready, and my mom drove me home. We both cried all the way home, and uh, I didn't know why, and they gave me some paperwork to fill out, and they said, when you're ready, send it in, and this was right after I had graduated high school, so I was 17, mm. and... I never filled it out. Hmm. And I don't know why I never filled it out. It just, I guess I wasn't being called in that direction. Hmm. So when I realized I wasn't going to do that, and I had already entered Cal State LA, I said, the only other thing I love is music. So I'm going to go sign up as a music major. Wow. And, and I did and never looked back.
0: Yeah. And uh, when you finished, did you? what was
1: the first gig that you had? I was, okay, so I was learning a whole lot during college and I had a knack for it and a passion for it because yeah. it was, you know, all of a sudden I'm singing in a four-part choir, singing, uh, you know, the, the Ingenieri um, Tenebrae sunt which I absolutely adored and um, singing in Latin in four parts for the first time in my life and hearing all this harmony. I mean, I'd been singing in the church choir, but that was more of like a band. Uh, so we would do harmonies, but we weren't doing like, you know, four-part choral music. And um, it was a very enlightening, exciting experience for me. Um, so I went to the, um, I went to the uh, teacher, uh, Dr. Fowles, God rest his soul. And uh, I said, I want to be a music major. And he says, okay. I said, I want to I study composition. Mm. And he says, we don't have a composition major. So we'll put you down as a vocal major. Now, I don't understand what happened there exactly, <laughs> because I know they had a composition major at Cal State LA, but they didn't have a vocal composition, mm. and I think that's what he thought I was looking for, because he knew me through the choir,
0: yeah. so,
1: and I didn't know any better, so I'm like, well, okay, sign me up, and we signed it, and he promptly retired right after that. <laughs> Now, he was a sweetheart of a guy, and he taught me all about Gregorian chant. I learned so much from him about it, doing workshops and things after, uh, after he retired, sang in a choir that he had that was all Gregorian chant. We wore robes and everything and, and performed, and it was a lot of fun. And he was one of those uh, teachers that kept up on me to see how I was doing as the years progressed. Mm. Uh, so I really appreciated him for that. Um, passed away a number of years ago um and i became a vocal major so now i'm a vocal ed major because i'm so late in my own history that i feel like it's a little too late to say i'm going to go out and be a professional performer so i'm fine i'll go teach that would be nice i can be around music all the time somewhere along the line my teachers started saying you know you could really become an opera singer if you wanted to because you've got You've got the pipes, you're young enough, and um, if you want to go that direction, change your major to BM, Bachelor of Music. And I said, okay, So I did, and at least I would get to take more classes and learn more, and I was excited by that. So I did. Towards the end of all of that, and I'd already done my first recital, my junior recital, um, the school got a call saying we need a replacement teacher in the middle of the year in February at this junior high teaching choral music and general music. Do you have anybody that could interview? And so my uh, teacher, Dr. Tom Miyake, uh, he gave them my name and I went down and auditioned and lo and behold, I got the job, but I didn't have a degree yet. (laughs) I wasn't wasn't finished because I was a BM. So I went back to the school. I said, this school wants to hire me in February, like, you know, a month from now. And um, they said, we'll expedite your paperwork. They were great about it. They returned me to a BA from a BM because I had already finished the BA requirement. They passed the paperwork, shoved it through, got me on an emergency credential, and away I went. I was now a choral director. That's great. And uh, And I thought I would... Yeah, go ahead. I thought I would do that for a while, and that would be a stepping stone to maybe opera singing, to maybe something else, you know. Um, But after five and a half years of teaching junior high, I started teaching high school, and I said, I think I'm going to land here for a while. I'm going to stay here doing this. Uh, And I did. And And So how many years has it been? It's been about 29 years. That's great. Yeah. Well, I
0: I can uh, say firsthand uh, that you do a great job in the classroom because I did visit your school. Uh, boy, I don't know how many years ago that would have been now, but uh, when you were when teaching I, high school, when I was teaching high school out in Las Vegas, we were doing a uh, must have been a Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm uh, trip and a Heritage Festival down in in uh, L.A. or Anaheim, and we swung by the school and my kids sang, and I don't remember i think that maybe we came on a weird day and i don't i don't remember if your student sang for us or not um but i remember we got we we visited the classroom and it was it was great that you had us out and um yeah so i i've i've been to your classroom which is a a pretty cool
1: thing yeah
0: okay friends i want to take a minute to tell you about the sponsor for today's episode four fires meadery first meadery in toledo they are making some absolutely incredible stuff and the good news is that even if you can't drop in for a few glasses you can have the mead shipped directly to your door i am not sure i can imagine a more exciting package to open right now on their website you can order things like mangos a mango pineapple honey wine with ghost peppers added The ghost peppers might sound kind of intense, but the sweet and heat are amazingly well-balanced. Or maybe a bottle of Little Pink Lawn Chair. This is their strawberry, raspberry, and lemon mead to give you a taste of pink lemonade in the summer year-round. I had a glass of this on their patio a couple of weeks ago, and, well, it's the perfect summer beverage. If you want to try some, visit them on the web at 4fmeadery.com and order a bottle today. They're shipping nationwide, and you don't want to miss out. Again, that is the number 4FMeadery.com to order your bottle today. I also hope you will show them some support on social media at 4FiresMeadery on Instagram. It's a great follow. Buy some mead. You won't regret it. And now, back to the conversation. All right, so Dave, we were just talking about Um, you being a a classroom teacher and that you've been teaching for quite a long time, high school choir. Um, When uh, when did the first composition happen? Uh, I mean, I know that there were probably many compositions happening all the time, uh, writing music, but um, what was the first thing that like got published or was a performance by a group that wasn't yours?
1: Well, you know, this goes back to my accordion days, as far as my my desire to put notes on the page. Yeah. Or at least words and chord symbols, you know, when I was playing guitar. It always seemed to be something that that drew me. So when I got to college and I was really becoming good at reading music, because that's what I was studying and taking music theory and stuff like this. We went, as a group from the college, we went out to Phoenix for, uh, I think it was ACDA National. It might've been the regional that year. In Phoenix, we went and I heard so many things that just set me on fire. I Mm. I had never heard music like that before. Uh, Among those groups was the Tapiola Choir, Kids Choir from Finland, Mm. which I still have that CD and still love to this day. It was unbelievably good. they did this wonderful piece at the end where all these little Finnish kids started singing American folk music and they took out the cowboy hats and fiddles huh. and they started fiddling and playing and singing this American folk music. It was unbelievable. The crowd went nuts. Yeah. But they're atonal music. They're, you know, they're really out there. Avant garde stuff just amazed me. So I remember coming home, someone's dad picked us up drove us home and i was like taking out the staff paper in the back seat and i was starting to write my first piece of choral music and i was like yeah you know I, this is i gotta start doing this and so uh, so i did um that stayed with me all through college where i wanted to write i wanted to mm-hmm. create and and i did and i kept creating and experimenting and I would ask friends, give me a favorite text and I'll write you an art song, you know, that kind Mm. of. So I just thought I can get some practice. Um, And so I did a lot of that. The very first published piece came along sometime after uh, I was working with Don Brenniger, who um, taught us both at Mm at the summer masters program and we had we were both at a workshop four corners workshop in uh, at the northern arizona university mm-hmm. we were there that summer and i showed him a piece i had been working on it was uh, a piece called uh three three poems by saint john of the cross and so they were in like 16th century spanish from spanish from spain uh language and so as i was as working on these i showed them to him and he was like this is very good and I would love to uh, perform this. And so I was very excited that that was that that was a possibility. Um, He also helped me to get that published with Walton. He showed it to them Mm. and that I'd like to see this in print. And uh, one thing led to another and it got published and uh, and Don performed it in Pasadena. And I remember hearing the tenor solo. I wrote this beastly tenor solo in the middle of it that uh, I would not even want to sing myself, <laughs> yeah. and I could hear the guy practicing it in this in the beautiful church in Pasadena, and I could hear it echoing through the hall before the concert. And I'm like, "That's my music! Oh my gosh, uh, somebody's singing it! It's actually going to happen." So that was the first time, and that's gotten. I mean, that's gotten quite a few
0: performances. I mean, people are still still buying it, still singing that one. That's a. I mean, I think people might know you well for that piece
1: well it was nice when i i found it on a cd once uh it was louisiana state uh, university acapella choir yeah and, uh, we were at a conference somewhere and one of my friends uh said hey look you, your need your pieces on this cd he did two of the movements out of the three and that was very exciting for me to to see it was out there i don't know if it's selling anymore uh the piece that ended up selling a ton and lasted for a long time was my African processional uh, mm-hmm. Jum- Jumbo Rafiki Young group. Um, That piece went all over the world. It was very exciting for me. And uh, now and then I'll, I'll Google it, or YouTube it, and I'll see groups doing it from China and groups doing it from, you know, uh, all, all the way up to the United States um, Air Force singing sergeants. There's a video of them singing it on the steps of the Capitol building. And I'm like, holy wow. cow. Yeah. <laughs> that's super cool uh
0: now uh because you were not a composition major in college and that was maybe not while i I, because i i i know you enough to know that you were always probably writing things and creating and and um that your first compositions weren't when you started composing per se Uh, Mm um but uh because you maybe didn't have some of that formal training in college exactly the way you would have if you'd been a composition major, have you taken on any major uh, kind of mentors or, or people who have helped guide some of your process as a composer
1: uh, post-college, later in life? Oh, absolutely, and, um, and so here's my little story I like to tell. Eric Whitaker and I were sitting on a bus in Long Beach one day, (laughs) and we were going to an ACDA student symposium. We both had a work that was going to be performed. He was, I think, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So they were down for the, the symposium, and I was at Cal State LA. And so we're both taking a piece that we had written to have it read by the convention and to present it at the at the, This group of ACDA student chapters, and um, from there, you know, Eric focused on composition and be, you know got his degrees in composition, and that was everything he was doing. For me, I went the education route, um, and I was ensconced in teaching and composing when I could. So our two trajectories, kind of, you know, his shot up and mine <laughs> went nice and slow but steady, you know. Yeah. And it's still going that way because I'm still teaching and got other responsibilities and all, you know, but, but composition has been a main focus of my music making ever since I was mm-hmm. that nine-year-old kid trying to create stuff on my accordion. Um, my two mentors, I've got two. Uh, one is W.A. Matthew, who I know you're very familiar with. And mm-hmm. I, I believe you've talked with him, haven't you? Mm-hmm. You had some conversations with him on the phone. Yeah. Um, Master teacher, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful influence in my life. And my music is what it is because of him. Uh, he's, he really took me to the next levels. And because I didn't have that formal training through an institution, I look at it this way. You know, I've been studying with him. I'm still studying with him for over 20 years. And, and it's had a profound effect on what I do. A lot of the basics that you might that you might get in an institutional program, you have to pursue it yourself. Because if you don't, you're not really gonna get it out of a program. I've, I've mentored a lot of composers now who come to me and say, teach me how to write better vocal music because we do instrumental and we don't quite know the, the voice as well. Can you show me some tricks and tips? And I enjoy doing that very much, and so we end up talking about their compositional degree programs, whether it's uh, undergrad or, or grad programs. And I say, well, how much counterpoint do they give you in that in that class uh, in that program? Well, we didn't have to take any counterpoint classes. They'll say, mm. you know, and it it, it boggles my mind. Um, the understanding of harmony and how harmony really works, which is what I've learned from W.A. Matthew, who we call a Laudine. He goes by the name Laudine. So um, I've learned so much about harmony and how harmony works through him. But it's such an in-depth study. You know the book Harmonic Experience. You've been in there. That book is a lifelong, you know, uh, harmony Bible that's Mm -hmm. meant to be studied over a long time. And, And I have, I've studied it since it was first published. I had one of the first copies that came through. I was learning out of the manuscript copy from Don (laughs) Brenniger who got it from Aloudine. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not, you know, if you go from what I've heard into a composition program, now you're working, you know, you're doing a degree program, you're gonna start churning out works. You're gonna get a lot of experience, hopefully get to hear your pieces performed uh, over the years that you're there. But there's not necessarily a lot of going back to study counterpoint. Maybe you had one semester of it. Maybe you had a year of it if you were lucky in undergrad. That's not, doesn't seem to be the focus. So with a Laudine and with my second mentor, George Heusenstamm, I'll talk about him in a minute. Um, I've studied counterpoint over the years a lot. I've studied, um, I've studied figured base. I'm studying it now, in fact, where you learn these these bases. I've got a copy of a book uh, by uh, Paul Vidal of like 179 figured bases to solve. If you solve them all properly, and you learn them and you memorize them and you transpose them to different keys, you'll basically be learning all the different moves, four-part moves, four-part models in tonal harmony that exist. And this is what they were teaching at the Paris Conservatory. Mm. Fantastic book. Not that you got to learn them all. I've learned only, you know, three or four of them right now. But spending time with them has been such a wonderful experience. And I know that that connects me to this lineage of, of mm-hmm. harmonic understanding that a lot of composers nowadays don't have uh, from what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. From those I've talked to and I've looked at their music and they've asked me, you know, can you can you take a look at this? And I'll give them my my opinions from my experience. So studying figure base, studying counterpoint, studying harmony, studying orchestration, you know, these are kind of the the hallmarks of, of being a composer in my mind. And that seems to be changing. Mm -hmm. That's changing. And that seems to be less important, even in degree programs. So I feel like I've come by my knowledge, very honestly, Mm -hmm. um, over years and years of study deep study into these things while at the same time creating my own works um george george and, and Alaudine are both wonderful examples of this because you know allowed got his his degree from the university of chicago his uh his ba or bm and then after that it was all practical experience it was mm-hmm. all what he was doing to push ahead to learn he didn't go to other degree programs and he writes this amazing book and three others and one that's on the way in fact um he was playing in the stan kenton band um playing third trumpet and writing arrangements for the stan kenton band right that kind of stuff um george did not get a degree at all george was 35 years old he was a newspaper man working for the herald examiner in los angeles and he tells his wife, I think I wanna be a composer. Well, the, the newspapers went on strike and he found a lot of time to get into the Walter Piston books and the Kent Cannon orchestration books and counterpoint books. And he studied and studied and studied and he became a composer, mm-hmm. uh, very experimental but also very understanding of counterpoint and harmony. Um, lots of atonal music, but lots of tonal music too. I now have his entire catalog. He's, he's given it to me to take care of for him. So I've got his 90 works for orchestras and instrumental groups and choruses. And it's, it's unbelievable because they're all handwritten. Mm. So he, he wrote the Norton Manual of Music Notation for, um, uh, for the Norton Company, which they picked it up and they wanted to use it in all the colleges. So many people know this book. He wrote a couple of harmony books for Hal Leonard And he has a counterpoint book that I've learned from that he used to use as a professor at Northridge, uh, Cal State Northridge, and Cal State LA and Cal State Dominguez Hills. But he never finished the last chapter, chapter 12, writing three-part fugue. He started it, but he never actually finished writing the book. And I don't know if I'm going to get that last chapter out of him. Now, I took composition uh, lessons from George when I was at Cal State LA. Life. Mm. Uh, I would go drive out to his house and um, he turned me on to to what music theory was all about. And he was my second year theory teacher. And, um, And then we lost touch after I graduated. About 20 years later, he finds me on Facebook and he says, I was just looking for you, thinking about you, seeing how you were doing. I'm publishing my harmony books with Hal Leonard and uh and i said well we must get together for lunch and since then we've become fast friends and for the last 10 years he's been my teacher and mentor and um and he's a wonderful guy never got a degree in composition but Mm -hmm. he had a worldwide reputation and the works Mm -hmm. he wrote are phenomenal and so i i started a website for him it's georgehoysenstom.com and um put a lot of his works on there for people to hear and uh and, you know, people can contact there if they want any of the scores. And I wanted to preserve his legacy because he's going to be 95 now. Mm. Uh, you know, Laudine is almost 85, I think 84 this this year. So um, I want to do all I can to preserve what they've done while they were here, you know.
0: For sure. Uh, yeah, Louding, uh you mentioned that I'd, I'd talked to them uh, just once. We had a, a lengthy conversation because I interviewed him as part of my master's thesis. So actually our conversation, the transcription was the addendum uh, to my thesis and uh, was, he is amazing in uh, many ways. And you mentioned the harmonic experience, which actually my laptop is sitting on top of right now, uh, because it's kind of with all my music stuff. That's where I keep the recording things and it uh, is, is always close by. It supports us in many ways. (laughs) Indeed. I will say uh, uh, for anybody listening um, who does not know uh, his books, W.A. Matthew's books, I I can honestly say that they were um, life-changing. The harmonic experience, certainly in the way that I um, approach conducting and singing and uh, understanding choral music and, and music in general. Um, but the other books, right? The Musical Life, the listening book, Bridge of Waves, in the way that I think and talk about music and um, people. I mean, it's it's much bigger uh, than, than music. Uh, yeah. And I, I will say the only, I have one voicemail, on my phone that is saved. And it is, it's from Aloudian (laughs) Uh, because it meant so much to me at at the time um, that it's the only voicemail I've ever saved. And, and it's been through several phones and it's there in the account has, I've always got it. Um, So uh, yeah, people should,
1: should check out his stuff. Uh, He's got a a forthcoming book that he's writing right now. So uh, I'm very, very excited to hear that yeah it's like it's similar to those other three it's it's essays about music which mm-hmm. he's so eloquent when he writes these um i keep several copies over there on my piano and give them away as gifts all the time uh, harmonic experience is the big you know magnum opus. Yeah. but uh these are these smaller books are wonderful wonderful reads
0: i have also given them away as gifts to former students on several occasions
1: mm-hmm. yeah you know, um sometime in the, in the process of us working together, w- when I started taking lessons with, with Laudine, it was, I, I started to offer my services on finale. And I said, would mm-hmm. you like me to, do you have anything you'd like me to set for you? Well, his music can, like his piano music can be insanely complicated. Yeah. But Essentially I used to, I used to barter lesson time for finale time. And we eventually came to an understanding. He said, look, I've got so much music, and I'm going to have so much more as the years go by. So I'll just teach you for free whenever you want, and you be my uh, my engraver for life whenever I need you. <laughs> that's, that's a great deal. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking now, I want to get back more into uh, your music. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about, you know, I told you beforehand, there are a couple of things that. Pieces of yours that I specifically want to talk about, and obviously because they're near and dear uh, to my heart. Um, so I want to talk a, a little bit first about songs of fatherhood. And because
1: you're a father now, too.
0: I, I am. I am a father now. And have you listened uh, to
1: them since you became a father?
0: I have not sat and listened to them all the way through since I've become a father, but I, I, have, I think about them quite often. Mm -hmm. Um, because whenever I think about, uh, whatever and ever, amen as a, um, project, as a, as a thing that exists, uh, and this podcast, for those of you who may not remember is sponsored by whatever and ever, amen, uh, uh, whatever and ever, amen is my sort of, um, so sort of professional, uh, vocal project, we'll call it. And, um. Uh, we were fortunate enough to premiere this wonderful work of yours called Songs of Fatherhood. And um, it is something that I am so proud to be a part of, because it was um, just a great, it came at the right time for me with the right people. And it was, uh, uh, I thought, a really good performance. And we got a great recording of it. And it's a piece that has meant a lot to me. So I, th- I think about it often, mm-hmm. and I have been meaning to carve out some time to just sit and listen uh, again. But of course, with a-, a one-year-old finding time to sit and do anything is hard to come by. Um, but uh, why don't you uh, tell folks a little bit about the genesis of the
1: piece um, and uh, how it came to be? And this is a, one of my pieces very, I mean, I love all my pieces, but this is a near and dear to my heart one also. Uh, I felt it was me writing about something that I had uh, plenty of experience with at that time. You know, this was, gee, is it almost 10 years now? Uh, when did we do that? Um, I think uh, 2013 or 2014. Because the original piece, let's remember that you asked me to write a piece for your uh, doctoral recital.
0: Yeah. uh, So I think that would have been in 2012. And then Songs of Fatherhood would have come in 2013, if if I'm remembering correctly.
1: And I was at a point in my composition where I was tired of writing three to five minute pieces. And I felt I needed to do something more substantial. Uh, As a choral person, we often write three to five minute pieces. And so I wanted something uh, else. And when you asked me to write the piece, I was very excited. Um, and so I wrote, I, I started searching through the books of, of uh poet, Bill Wallace, uh, my friend from Los Angeles who had recently performed a bunch of my pieces at his church because uh, oh. Bill, Bill uh, Belen uh, had decided to do, he was at the Unitarian church in Los Angeles and decided uh, he wanted to do a, a day of my music, so I was very excited by that. And Bill Wallace, literature teacher at LA Valley College, um, also had been an opera singer in Germany uh, when he was younger. Um, he was singing in the choirs, so he got familiar with my music there. Sent me a stack of books of his and said, "Maybe you would consider setting some of my music to some of my poetry to music." And so I was at the same time you asked me to write a piece. So those two uh, things converged in, and, and I found the piece Asher's Moment. It was the moment of his son's birth that he was describing in beautiful detail, wonderful, wonderful imagery. And um, that he had written just after the birth had happened. He next day, maybe sat down with paper and and tried to describe the experience of becoming a father that way. And, um, and that piece moved me and my kids were still pretty young. So I was like, I'm gonna write this and I did and you performed it. And at some point, Bill and I started talking and I said, you know, what do you think uh, about making a set of songs? And maybe Brad would perform those with his group. And so we all kind of agreed that that's what we were going to do, and I and I told you uh, that I'd be writing a set of three songs, one based on birth, one on adolescence, and then another one that would be the letting go of your children eventually. And uh, you said, "Yes, we'll do it. We'll put a concert together. We'll make it happen."
0: Yeah, I was. I, I mean, I was foaming at the mouth. I was so excited because frankly, when I asked you to uh, contribute the first piece, I think I basically said, I have nothing to offer you except my gratitude and a performance. But would you consider writing something? Because I was a grad student with no money, uh, but wanting to do something exciting, right? wanting to do some new music. And so we, we did, we sang and it, um, it you know, it, it was an okay, I think, first performance, but when you came back and said, hey, there's going to be some more music, would you do it? I mean, I was elated and, and was was thrilled
1: with that. So uh, so you, you offered some more pieces. So I got the two pieces, I found more poems in Bill's books. And I told Bill, you know, what we're missing here is a uh, is adolescence, the, the set, it doesn't feel quite right. Um, do you have any poems about adolescence? And he said, well, let me see. And if I, if I can't find one in my books, I'll, I'll write you one. Uh, sure enough, he wrote one um, and I said, and I called you or I emailed you and I said, so Brad, I know you have a rehearsal schedule already and you're doing three of these pieces. <laughs> Can you add a fourth? And you said, we'll make it happen. Uh, always always uh, the optimist and, uh, and always available. I, I really appreciated that. And so I wrote the piece and um, got it to you. And it was not an easy piece, um, hmm. but then I looked at it and I was, I was actually showing the set to my mother. And um, I said, I was thinking of adding a fifth to this set. And so she goes, and I go, but I thought it might be too morbid. It's the father passing away. Um, and she goes, that's not morbid at all. That's the life cycle. That's the perfect way to end the set. And I said, Oh my gosh, can I dare call Brad again? <laughs> and I did. And I said, Brad, would you be able to fit in a fifth piece if it was kind of him, like, you know, not terribly <laughs> difficult. And you said, uh, absolutely. We'll make it happen. And, uh, and I called Bill and I said, Bill, I need a hymn like text. <laughs> um, for the passing on of the father and the passing of the torch to the son who is now the father and um and bill said i'll get right on it and he wrote that last movement and it's just a beautiful uh way to end up the set and uh and there you have it we had the piece we bill and i flew up to hear you guys perform it and record it and it was it was just a joy
0: it it really was. It it meant so much to me that you and Bill were able to be there, and um, both of you spoke uh, before the performance uh, a little bit to the audience, which which meant a lot to me. And um, it, I think the performance was was really well received. I mean, people seemed to really be moved uh, by. Uh, what we did, and and obviously that that is so much a credit to wonderful poetry and an incredible setting of that poetry, um, and uh, we were we were humbled and honored to perform it. And then we were fortunate enough, of course, to go back and um, get a, a good solid, um, you know, recording—not a live recording, but a real recording—in that uh, my selfish sameless plug is that that is available uh for streaming and or purchase on spotify and apple music and anywhere else you can uh find your music but uh one we're really um really proud of uh there are some really clever and wonderful things in in that set of songs um can you talk about uh uh the, in the last movement, uh, there are a couple of things in the very last movement that I think people will uh, really enjoy, and one is um, maybe quoting some other music, uh, and then uh, you have a, a, a funny thing you do with the words uh, at one point, uh, and you can maybe tell people about that. I, I, I'm sure I hope you know what I'm talking about in both of those instances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, the first <laughs> Good. One...
1: I, I knew I wanted to put a, a J.S. Bach quote in there somewhere, mm-hmm. and I didn't know exactly how to do that. I had heard some guitar pieces that quoted Bach um, that I that I loved. And uh, of course, for me, the end-all be-all of musical composition happens to begin and end with Bach. Um, and some would disagree. But for me, it's he's been the most influential composer in my life. Um, so I wanted to quote him in this larger piece that I was writing, which ended up about maybe 20 minutes long, this set, 15 to 20 minutes. And, and so I was listening to some Bach cantatas. There's a group, um, is it the, what was their name? The, the Trinity Wall Street Choir. Do you know this group? I don't think so. I think it's the Trinity Wall Street Choir. I think that was their name. And they did the Bach uh, Motets. Exquisite recordings of these pieces just unbelievably good Uh, the tuning is amazing and I was listening to them and I was following the scores and I was um, you know as we uh, nerdy music types do and so I was looking at the text and the text of one of them I forget I forget which motet it is but the text said as a father uh, cares for his for his little child and I said there it is. There's the quote. Uh, mm-hmm. So I took that and I used it, and I sewed it into uh, the middle of that third, of that last movement, fifth movement. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it worked out well. In fact, one point if for a bar and a half or so, it's like exact quote of four mm-hmm. part out of Bach. Uh, other ones kind of weave it in and out uh, here and there. Um, I try to explain my students, this is not plagiarism. This is honoring. Yeah. <laughs> this is showing an homage to somebody that means a lot to you. And anyone who is um, well-versed in music is going to recognize that as, as box music, not mine. Um, so there was that one. At the end, I'm trying to remember the exact text, but Bill says he worked it into the poem, and I didn't hear it until later. Yeah. after it was written and you performed it um it's talking about the the um the photograph that's left of the father and there's this click sound in the text that it's a ch sound yeah, it's the word is catch catch yeah mm-hmm. like you they caught the image of the father on this this photograph that allows you to remember him And right when it's the, you know, that that was the clicking of the, of the camera. Yeah. And I honestly didn't hear that until after you performed it. And I was like, son of a gun. And I asked Bill about it and he said, yeah, I put that in there. (laughs) Well, and I don't think
0: we didn't know at the live performance either. I don't think we'd caught it. And then I, I think we must've you and I prior to the recording session had, had talked and you said and you knew you caught this and i went yeah 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 yeah, i caught Mm -hmm. that (laughs) um but uh then i i same thing i said it to the singers you know i said oh and you guys of course all knew you caught this right (laughs) and they were all you know
1: they you know was one of those moments but it is um it might have been because I, I took it to my students, and I would always workshop pieces like that with my chamber singers. Yeah, um, they were very wonderful about it because I could play it for them, sing it through, teach them a little bit, and then if I needed to change things and I saw that things didn't work, I'd go back to uh, to my you know piano and fix it and work it and bring it back to them a new draft. I hmm. must have heard it there and then told you afterwards that that I had found that because I certainly didn't think of it when I was composing it
0: yeah one of the things that i i really like um about the set is that there are several um solos uh kind of littered throughout and there's uh in particular uh a a duet with two tenors uh that's uh kind of resolved at the the end of the piece and um really uh set in a uh Really singable. It's all of it's very singer friendly, Um, but the solos in there are, are, uh, I think, in the first movement. There's maybe a soprano solo and a tenor solo, uh, but pretty short. Nice ways to feature singers. And um, in fact, the first movement I think is a really, really easy standalone movement. If somebody didn't wasn't quite ready to commit to all five, uh, that first movement would be a great one to to pull out. Uh, and and do Um, yeah correct yeah Uh, now you have another spot in uh, the piece that I wanted to talk about where there are some very very difficult uh, metrical choices that you've made yeah and there are two different meters happening at one time Uh, and I'm I'm wondering if you could tell us about that and, and how that came to be There
1: was this idea of, that was at the end of the third movement. And there's this idea of dancing and being joyful and happy with your son. And um, I was looking for ways to be creative and to demonstrate that and to do a repeated type of ostinato pattern. I was able to put them together and somehow I was able to do a, I think it was a pattern of eight beats that repeated nine times and and I had to make finale shove over the bar lines because I had some of them in four two time and some of them in nine I don't I don't even remember off the top of my look at the score again but I was tickled when I found out that I could make them all arrive at the same place at the same time after so many repetitions so it became this kind of cyclic type of thing that that ended up in the same place and it sounded like dancing it and it does and it it is easy,
0: uh, the two parts individually, right? So if you have the tenor and basses just singing together, that kind of gets into a groove and you go, oh yeah, this, no problem, we got this. And then you have the Speranos Naso singing together and kind of gets into a groove and no problem, we got this. And then you put the the parts together and it it was a real challenge for us. And I remember (laughs) early in the process, uh, before I had seen this piece, we were emailing back and forth and you sent me a real funny cryptic email. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like <laughs> something like, uh, and I I have a question for you. When does four plus four equal nine or something something like that? And it I it made no sense to me at all. It made me laugh, but I didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, and then I, of course I got the piece and, and it, it made perfect sense, um, <laughs> but it, it does evoke a lot of dance. And I think that was one of the, uh, we, we've had three rehearsals, I think, by the way, before we did this concert and mm-hmm. that section was, uh, probably what we spent the most dedicated time to because it was a challenge. Wow. And some of the singers, I think were real frustrated at first because it was hard and, and, um, I won't say this is true of all singers, but sometimes singers like things that just sing easily the first time, and when they have to work, they can get frustrated uh, <laughs> if it doesn't if it doesn't come together right away. Um, and so, some of my singers I think were were feeling a little bit um, overwhelmed by that section. But I know that those same singers, once we got things in performance order uh, and were ready to go, that was probably the part that they liked the most because it is um, different you know it's unique it's it's interesting uh, and challenging rhythms are not something singers always get
1: uh, and there's a very challenging rhythms uh, not even in that because uh, that's you know that's you get into a groove and it goes and I would often think that it, I don't know how he's gonna conduct this I thought to myself but <laughs> as a conductor um, I, I thought to myself, it's none of my business. He can do whatever he's got to do. This is what the music is supposed to sound like. <laughs> and you did it brilliantly, I got to say. Um, but the, the really difficult rhythms were at the beginning, all the, the really fast stuff running through where you have the slong, the, the long, slow, sustained sounds of the spranz and altos over that real fast uh, thing going on and the tenors and the basses, all that dancing stuff. Yeah. Um, but that um, you did it brilliantly. Your singers did it brilliantly. I couldn't believe how good it sounded after so few rehearsals. It came
0: together really well, and we were um, again just very honored to be a part of it. And it is still one of the things that I'm I'm most proud of as a as a performance, as a recording, as a project. Um, Thank you. you know, feeling like it was collaborative uh, because we did. We talked. Um, through a couple of the rehearsals, and and uh, I know that there was a spot. Um, I don't remember if it was in the first or second movement, but there was a spot where the harmony gets built up, maybe in fifths, kind of stacked fifths, and the um, bass, baritone, and tenors uh, in your original draft all entered in one spot. And I said, "We're we're not getting this." Um, you know, uh, second, fifth, or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and uh, we talked about that and we, you you kind of shifted that entrance just a little bit. And that meant a lot to me uh, because we were, again, it felt like we were uh, collaborating through this process. And I know that Bill was involved in collaborating early in the process, right? You said, I need more text to do this and, and so, it kind of was evolving over time. And then um, at the performance, uh, and people could see this on the Whatever and Every Amen website as well, uh, we actually had some artwork done to accompany the pieces. And that was a, an, an artist uh, that I met through a friend named Lorado, who uh, she uh, did different unique drawings for each one. And so our program that day was a 11 by 17 with all the text and these drawings on it. Um, And uh, it was was just, yeah, it felt like a really unique and and fun collaborative uh, thing. So I I very much to this day, I'm still so proud of that uh, performance. And I
1: so appreciate you gifting us with that. You know, and one last comment about that piece is the fourth movement that was the the, the double tenor solo. Um, That duet between the dad and the son, I don't know if it came off that well in live performance, but the recording is brilliant, and the recording is exactly as it's supposed to sound because the the choir is is you know doing these Indian syllables in the background, the Sare and and I don't know if that was tough on the sopranos to stay up there that long, but um, but they did did it brilliantly and so beautifully in tune. Um, and the way you can hear every word in every note of those of those uh, that tenor duet—it's it, just I, I love listening to that that movement because you captured it so brilliantly.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, so, for everybody who's listening, who is obviously now just rushing to go and find this piece to program with their choirs, uh, they can find it on musicspoke.com, uh, right? Yes. Uh, Uh, and purchase it. I think all the individual movements are available for sale by themselves or they can buy the whole thing. Um, And you can hear uh, what we think is a pretty nice recording up on uh, Spotify. It's on the whateverchoir.org website and uh, hopefully people will listen. So Uh, another piece that I was so fortunate uh, to get from you and be able to prepare with uh, singers is called Peace is Every Step. Uh, And I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about that piece and where that one sort of came from.
1: Yeah, let's see. Pieces Every Step is um, maybe more of a meditation than a concert work, I think. Um, I was uh, asked to write a piece for the Choral Arts Initiative, Brandon Elliott uh, in Orange County does amazing amazing phenomenal work with with his singers and with a lot of um new composers commissioning composers all the time and they were having their five-year anniversary and one of the singers who was a good friend of mine um he said i've got four brandon said i've got four composers already we need a a fifth and my friend uh, lorraine who was in the group she said Oh, you got to ask David Montoya. So, uh, so he did, and I was terribly excited to be able to write for that high-caliber group. And um, and I told him, okay, so I think I'm going to be writing a piece based on a Catholic prayer that my mother uh, is close to, and I think I'll be writing it for uh, for her birthday, her 70th birthday. I've never written her anything, so I think I'll do that. And I started to work on it, and Brandon liked the idea, and he said that's going to be great. It was all about light. Um, it was the concert theme was all about light, and so I set to working on it. But somewhere along the line, I got onto this TikNot Han poem. Uh, I had just written a, a larger work for harp and choir and baritone solo called Our True Heritage, based on a Ticknot Han poem, and um, I was excited about writing for the harp, which that was the first time I had done it. Um, and I started to work on this, this text, this piece is every step. And so at some point we're getting near the deadline when the composition is due. And I went to Brennan and I said, well, I promised you an a acapella Catholic prayer piece. And I think I've got an accompanied by <laughs> harp, a Buddhist four part piece and seven, eight part piece. And so they had already had plans. And so he said, well, I think we wanted the original piece. And so I said, okay. Uh, he goes, why don't you finish? Because Pieces Every Step was coming along faster than, than the piece that I was supposed to be finishing for Brandon. Mm. So he says, why don't you finish them both, send them both to us and we'll, we'll pick one to do for the premiere. And I said, okay, uh, agreed to that. And I sent him both. Well, he ended up choosing Light of Mary, so Pieces Every Step uh, didn't get its performance at the time, and uh, I was a little disappointed because I was excited, and that was the one that I had really been working hard on. But Light of Mary came out um, came out quite um, quite well, I thought, and I was very excited by that one too. And I was excited to be able to give my mother a premiere by a top-notch group that she could go and attend and mm-hmm. sit watch and listen to. And she was very moved, very thankful for it all. Uh, and we got a great recording of Light of Mary. So I think that's when I sent you pieces every step. And I said, uh, you, what do you, th- you think you can get this one going? And, uh, and you did. And, and uh, it's a tricky piece. It's, it's in 7-4, I think. And the drum beat just continues steady underneath it the whole time. Uh, very softly, while the harp and the singers kind of come in and out over this meditative text, and I put in the notes on on the score that it would maybe be a good idea to um, end the first half of a concert with that piece and don't have any applause at the end. Just let people file out after it's over and, and take a little break because it's you know it, it's so calm and meditative. I think it's it's a tricky piece, but I think it's so meditative that applause would just kind of, kind of break the mood at the end.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. It's a,
0: a lovely piece. Um, it, you mentioned that you were uh, with Our True Heritage and then going into this piece kind of early in your process, uh, writing for Harp, uh, that Our True Heritage was the first time you'd written for Harp. Well, I had not conducted uh, Harp, before. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it it's tough when you're talking, uh, you know, working with an instrument that you don't have the, the language for. I mean, it's a hard enough, I think, as a choral director conducting any instrument that you don't play um, to sometimes find the language to use or um, how to convey your thoughts. You know, uh, uh, a, a quick digression here uh when i was in my undergrad uh at unlv somehow i never took any instrumental methods course You're so right. not yeah so i never ever ever have played any brass woodwind string instrument of any kind <laughs> and I don't know of any uh, undergraduate program where that happens. I'm sure it doesn't, isn't still that way. You don't be, I'm not even sure that it was that way at the time um, or if I somehow squeaked through um, uh, without doing it. But um, you know, so I I, I have just don't have any uh, facility for any of these other instruments. Um, but harp was the same way. And, and, you know, so there's symbols in the harp writing that I didn't, fully understand what they meant. And, uh, you know, was our harpist Nancy was really kind and, and wonderful and helped me uh, through some of that uh, process. But uh, harp is a, a tricky thing. What, what brought you to the harp for Our True Heritage? And what was it about that, that uh, you wanted to use again?
1: You know, uh, I was commissioned to write a piece for the Contra Costa Corral in the Bay Area. Uh, they were having their 50th anniversary and they wanted to hire two composers. We submit samples and then they choose a composer. Well, they picked two of us and they were gonna be pairing things up with maybe a a Haydn Lord Nelson mass or, so they had an orchestra and they were gonna have me write an orchestra piece. Um, Didn't work out uh, to where I had the time to get it all going. And at some point they said, i tell you what, why don't we put your piece in spring and we'll do the other composer in the fall with the orchestra. And I said, okay. And they said, but we're not gonna have the orchestra anymore. And I said, okay, I understand that's that's okay. Um, So I'm sitting at my son's orchestra concert. They both played at Diamond Bar High School in the orchestra there. And this is the kind of high school that is performing uh, the first movement of Mahler's second symphony. Uh, at at a high school and the conductor had there's two harps in this so the conductor had both harps on either side of the conductor's podium not in the back where you usually see them So I'm sitting there listening to Mahler, which um, I said earlier that Bach is the, is my guy. Uh, Mahler is my second guy. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're gonna get into romantic orchestrations and colorings and uh, themes, you know, he's it for me. Uh, and And I've loved him since college. And so I'm listening to the second symphony and I'm seeing how simply Mahler used the harp in that movement. I mean, simple, you know, bum, 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 just simple. And I'm thinking, why are there two harps there? It doesn't even need to be (laughs) two harps, but they're right there in front of my face. And so I'm like, I should try and write for harp. Maybe I can write this piece that was supposed to be an orchestra piece. I write a piece for harp instead and I, Made a bunch of phone calls, including to the conductor, and we got an agreement that uh, I, I could pick a harpist. I knew of one, a friend of a friend, who would teach me about the harp, and and I borrowed one of those harps from the high school for the summer. And the teachers like, "Yeah, go ahead, take it home," and uh, and so I did. I took this big giant concert harp home in my studio, and there's a picture on my Instagram of me sitting with it, leaning my head against it, and. Um, uh, and so I set about learning how to write for that instrument. Now, I play guitar, so I know about plucking strings and harmonics and different kinds of things. There's, it's, it's, of course, a totally different beast, but uh, it wasn't absolutely foreign to me. Yeah. Uh, I was able to pr- pick it up pretty okay. And, uh, and anything I would write, I would send it to the gal, and she would play through it. And she actually drove up to the Bay Area to premiere it with us uh, in two concerts, uh, that we did up there and, and it was great.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed Pieces Every Step. I, I you're right. It, it is a contemplative, uh, introspective, uh, kind of feeling piece. Um, but it is, um, challenging for singers without being difficult, um it is um uh very subtle but very very beautiful and i I do think that it was um very well received by our audience uh and we did give them some instruction about it being um you know leaving time at the end to kind of sit with your thoughts to sit with the music um at the end and uh i thought that went went quite well so uh it was another uh, piece that i i felt um you know, sort of an embarrassment of riches, uh, felt so pleased to have been kind of gifted the opportunity to, to perform this piece. So uh, yeah, people should go and find that and, and uh, program it because it's a great,
1: great tune. And if uh, all goes well, I don't know where the uh, publishing schedule is uh, right now, but um, Dot Publishing is going to be putting it out. Excellent, excellent. Well, when we'll, when it uh, when that does
0: happen, you let me know. We'll send out a link and attach it to this uh, episode of the show. So, Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you some things unrelated to music, uh, well, unrelated to your compositions, um, and uh, just some maybe quick hitter kind of stuff. Uh, what is your uh, favorite meal?
1: My favorite meal is plain old pizza yeah <laughs> i can eat pizza i say i could eat it every day but of course it's uh, not good for my stomach or yeah. my health but i i just love it i i do too do you have a favorite uh a favorite place that you go i do my favorite place was a place in temple city california it was called mama Patrillo's, and i've eaten pizza all over the world and that was my favorite place to get pizza. And they closed down after some Oof. 50 plus years of business went out. I think like last year, they finally closed their doors. I was so disappointed. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, pizza is probably my
0: favorite food. And I tell people all the time that if you brought me just like a regular hand-tossed pizza and I ate, So much that I was just so full that I thought I was going to burst. And I said, oh, no, I don't need any more. And then you brought me a thin crust pizza. I would certainly eat more because it's different pizza. I would I would find room. I, (laughs) too, love pizza in all uh, its shapes and forms. (laughs) Um, Who is your favorite rock band? And am I correct that it is Steely Dan. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Steely Dan baby. My and that, wife gave that, me this pillow. That out is of a concert T-shirt.
1: That is your favorite group. Am
0: I right about that?
1: I think they are the most creative, most quirky, most amazing band that um, that you've, you you can ever hear uh, in the pop rock uh, realm. I, I like to say when the aliens land and they want to hear our best music uh, as far as pop music goes, you get them a bunch of Steely Dan recordings.
0: Okay, so, <laughs> so if somebody is not a Steely Dan fan, you know, we've got, let's, let's say there's some young, hipper-than-I-am person listening to this podcast who doesn't know Steely Dan because they're so young and so hip. Uh, what would be three tracks? You've got to sell people on Steely
1: Dan in three songs. What would they be? Holy cow. Oh, my gosh, I don't know if I could do that, because every song is so different. Yeah. You know, it's it's like uh, later Beatles output. Every song is unique, different instrumentation, different uh, ideas, different sounds. It's not a four-instrument band uh, yeah. with, a, with a lead singer. It's, it's everything's different with the best players. But, okay, uh, if I have to narrow some down, uh, I think uh, Kid Charlemagne, has some of the best guitar playing you'll ever hear. Melodic, beautiful, mellifluous, it's just incredible. Um, If you go to um, the Caves of Altamira, going back to uh, what we're talking about, the caveman paintings, this is a rock song about caveman paintings. (laughs) And And the brass on there is unbelievably good. Um, And then if you want a standard that uh, that you can hear on the radio, even it would be peg, which just has such a bouncy beat. It's so fun to listen to. Oh,
0: it's just every song is just I know you could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you I, I know that we were talking at the very beginning about the fact that you read a lot you enjoy puzzles and, and that you might do uh, both of those things and compose more if you had a little more free time. Do you watch TV? Are you a consumer of television media? Uh, yes, I watch plenty of TV. <laughs> now in the last year when uh, we were all in our quarantines and stuck at home, were you binging things? Do you binge watch television?
1: At times I'll binge watch. Um, last summer, my sons and I made a goal to watch the entire series of Land of the Lost from the okay. 1970s. Uh-huh. Marshall Will and Holly. You on a routine expedition. Do you know this? Did you ever see this? Uh, I haven't seen it. It still holds up. <laughs> it's about a family, you know, getting transported to the dinosaur days and stuff like this and And we watched it, like in two days, we saw like three seasons uh, binge-watched that. It was fun.
0: (laughs) And anything that you're watching currently or recently that you're uh, a fan of?
1: Currently, my youngest son and I are making our way through The Simpsons. Uh Uh, We're on season 10. Season 10 out of like, I don't know, 30-some seasons. That's a lot. Yeah. uh, And it's a lot of fun, too explain to him all the references all the social references that he doesn't uh wouldn't get otherwise so uh that's fun my wife and i are watching breaking bad which is unbelievable this show um it's is it your just, first time we wanted to see it for a long time my first time through it yeah that's a good one and that's it's a good it's one. incredible my good yeah well speaking of
0: older and,
1: um, i'm trying to get
0: yeah, sorry go ahead, go ahead.
1: Oh, I'm also making my way through the Cosmos series with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, very good. Every episode, I just love. There's so much there to absorb.
0: Well, I was going to say, speaking of space and older shows, I uh, I committed to watching quite a bit of Star Trek uh, uh-huh. recently. This is uh, so. I remember when I was young. Um, at some point, we would go in and. Would watch. I remember very vividly watching Star Trek in my, with my dad in my parents' bed, like all the kids would pile into the bed and watch Star Trek. And this was when uh, the next generation was on. So I don't know how old I was at, at the time, um, but I'd seen lots and lots of episodes of it. And then had seen uh, a few episodes of deep space nine and a few episodes of Star Trek Voyager. Well, I went uh, and I decided when the, uh, covid happened and we were on lockdown and i had a newborn baby at home and wasn't leaving the house for anything uh i had a lot of time to watch tv and uh so i started watching star trek the next generation and i watched all seven seasons of that which is like 250 episodes and then i watched all seven seasons of deep space nine which is 250 ish episodes and i'm now on season five of Uh, star trek voyager and i'm embarrassed at how much uh television that i've watched considering i watched many other things besides that but it has been a wonderful (laughs) a wonderful undertaking um and is uh uh if if you're into that kind of thing it's a great it's been a great experience to just sit and watch them you know in order from start to finish Mm -hmm. Um, so that's been my my biggest television project of the last year and a half or so
1: my lengthiest television watching project is uh, Seinfeld which i've watched with my boys over and over again my wife says why is the same channel always on in our house yeah. <laughs> but we make seinfeld references constantly around my house my boys and i they just we find it hilarious and i think it's just a brilliant show. It's it's such a genius show. You know, my wife's watching Friends with my other son and uh, I say Friends is good and it's entertaining, but Seinfeld was genius. There was, there's yeah. a difference there. It's like, I love Lucy. It's like uh, the Simpsons. You know, there's something there that's different than everything else on television.
0: Yeah. When they change the things that come after them. Right. I mean, there's uh, those, those game changers that uh, when they happen, nothing is the same After that. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. Dave, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to sit and talk with me. Um, You know, I was so looking forward to this conversation because I do have such a uh, personal connection uh, to some of your music. And, you know, with. all of the people that I've had an opportunity to talk to, I've performed some of their music and worked on some of their music, but um, boy, your, your, your stuff's got a real special place in my heart. And I hope that people uh, listen to this episode and I hope they go and check out your music because uh, it is um, beautiful and deserves way, way, way more performances.
1: And uh, so hopefully people will check it out. Thank you, Brad. That, that means a lot to me. That makes me very happy. I really, yeah, really for it. sure.
0: Uh, do you have any uh, of your beverage left somewhere, sitting over your shoulder there? Well, there might be a little bit left in here. There's a well. That's a, a little it. bit's all you need. We'll say cheers. Cheers to you. All right. Link. Thank you for joining us for episode eight of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever Amen. Thank you to my guest, David Montoya. You can visit him on the web at montoyamusic.com to see all of his published and non-published scores. And there's a lot of great stuff there for choirs at just about any level and voicing. I especially recommend checking out his Songs of Fatherhood, which are just absolutely lovely. You can hear the Whatever and Ever Amen performance of this set on Spotify, Apple Music, or on our website, whateverchoir.org. As always, we hope that you will rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to be listening, and consider sharing a link to your favorite episode on your preferred social media platform. Thank you again to our sponsor for the episode, Four Fires Meadery. Their meat is absolutely world-class, and you can have it delivered directly to your door by ordering at www.4fmeadery.com. I do not have an upcoming guest to announce, as I am working on some scheduling with a few folks. But I'm hoping to bring you a bonus episode in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned for more information. Thank you all so much for listening. Cheers.